0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzat. Around the world, up and down the headlines with Bloomberg Opinion. This week's feature editor, joining us from a crowded newsroom, is a veteran whose bylines have also graced fortune and time. We talk corn, the NBA, burgers, China, Tesla, Elizabeth Warren, Amtrak. We've got it all, so do stay with us. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Sunday, November 10th at the National in downtown Richmond. Full disclosure presents the band Not A Surf, one of my very favorites, on the luck and grit and heartbreak and comebacks of 25 years in the music biz. I will interview the band, then they perform a full concert, and all of it is going to be taped for a documentary pilot. I mean, it being November, your ticket is pretty much getting you a turducken of content. Avoid most fees by getting your ticket in advance at the National's box office. Sunday, November 10th, Full Disclosure presents Not a Surf, right here in Richmond at the National. Join us. Joining me from Bloomberg's global headquarters in Manhattan is none other than Justin Fox, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. In past lives, he reported for Fortune, Time, the Tulare Advance Register. He wrote The Myth of the Rational Market, a great book that has been translated into at least six languages. Sir, how are you? Pretty good. By way of full disclosure, I have to say this. I I have a soft place in my heart for Justin Fox because 20 years ago, he accepted an email from mine. I was looking for career advice. I wanted to get out of the brokerage industry. He took me to the late, great Judson Grill and tried to first talk me out of going into business journalism. When he couldn't do that, he introduced me to many people, and that led to to many disasters. And as n tends toward infinity, that's where I am right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I tried to talk you out of it just in the sense that this is not a growth industry. But I think what I also said is, wow, if you actually went to business school and can write, you could probably do reasonably well in it.
0: Well, I'll tell you, we were uh, sharing this uh, this thing of fries, which came out like in a big you know, paper thing in a can. And you were working on a story. You might be able to find the byline somewhere on Fortune.com. Is, is Yahoo overvalued? And this, at the turn of the century, you posed this question. It was like, what's more valued fairly, AOL or Yahoo? So it was a different time and place, sir. Um, Yeah, I guess they were all overvalued. <laughs> Talk to me about the here and now. Uh, because again, 20 years ago, we're coming off this impeachment controversy. The markets were gangbusters in 1999 as well. They seemed to price in the fact that, yes, the president was impeached, but the Senate wasn't going to remove him. Where are we in the grand scheme of things right now? There's certainly this detached mood from capital markets versus where Washington is and all the Michigas there.
1: Stocks are not quite as expensive as they were in 99, early 2000, but they're pretty expensive. Like if you use the Bob Shiller's long-run price-earnings ratio, they're more expensive than they've been at any time except 99, 2000, and 1929. Yeah, it is this interesting... But I, I mean, I guess at that point... It feels like the the real economic risk then was the stock market itself, it turned out. I think the recession that followed was to a large extent because tech stocks had gone so crazy. Now it feels like, yeah, the market's kind of expensive, but the dangers are more external to dumb decisions being made by investors.
0: Hasn't that been going on for the longest time, though? You could have taken... Um, You know, if you wanted to dip your finger in the salad oil back in 2015 or 2016, stocks were overvalued. This this passivity has been going on for a long time. Yeah.
1: 2015, 2016 was pretty close to a recession. But it turned out to be okay for everybody except the oil industry and some manufacturers. And so things chugged along.
0: Let me take you kind of uh a... We could take it all around the world, but I'm fascinated this week in terms of uh, the histrionics between the United States and China uh, through the proxies. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, and the tweet that I think the general manager of the Houston Rockets put out – supporting the protesters in hong kong which drew immediate commercial retribution from beijing and two if you've been following the stuff with south park they came out with like the darkest spoof of what's been going on in china i mean a really violent and vivid episode scathing satire and and what you have is to my mind almost like a proxy diplomacy through uh companies in the united states or or private sector people who are willing to say things that the government won't during a trade war
1: Yeah, it's this really complicated thing where there was this theory that was sort of um, consensus establishment theory in the U.S. for a long time, which is that by engaging with China, you lead to China being a productive part of the world economy. And that's definitely worked out. And you also end up with this situation where over time it liberalizes. It becomes part of the family of Western liberal democracies. And that just hasn't happened at all, and over the past, under Xi, it's gone entirely in the opposite direction. And I think it's just sort of leading a lot of people to realize that what have we gotten ourselves into? Because U.S. corporations have spent the past two decades really betting big on China, and um, now we're at the point where, instead of exporting liberal values to China, They're exporting authoritarianism back to us through our corporations. So there's that whole story, which is almost totally separate from the trade relationship.
0: I I do want to dwell on that. Like, I keep going back to 1989, which was the real, you know, pre-WTO flare point in this. I don't know what George Bush Sr. could have done differently. I mean, did we have more suasion back then? We had at least the favored nation trading status thing to kind of throw around as a negotiating chip every year with Congress. But that was seeded in, in 2001. And if you plot this country's meteoric growth, I mean, it's been so chunky over the past 20 years that no one has been able to resist tapping into that GNP growth.
1: Right. And I, it's totally understandable, but it's also, I think, really disturbing to a lot of people from across the political spectrum that, you know, some guy, Daryl Morey, probably the the Billy Bean of basketball general managers and star of Michael Lewis books, makes a tweet, which, you know, I guess if you're an executive at a company, you in general should think about making political tweets in the first place. But it it gives me the creeps that that's suddenly a, you know, international scandal that some guy at a company had a personal opinion.
0: And it gives Bloomberg opinion columnist Connor Sen the the creeps he wrote in this um, article. Trade with China undermines America's liberal values. I'd like to quote Uh, The punishment of the NBA's Houston Rockets over a tweet by its GM marks a more aggressive Chinese effort to assert its economic leverage. If China is willing to blacklist an NBA team, banning Rockets game broadcasts and barring websites from selling team merchandise over a tweet by one employee... It raises the question of what it might do as its market power increases. The upshot is that if Americans thought that increased global trade was a way of exporting their cultural values, they should be very disappointed. The reality is that the U.S. has been importing Chinese censorship standards. In other words, although President Trump has been mostly focused on cheap Chinese imports being a bad deal for American workers and the deficit, the larger long-term concern might be that China undermines America by extorting profit-motivated businesses. I, I don't see a way out of this. If you look at the S and P five hundred, if you look at the portion of of sales that have been derived from China, you almost kind of have a fiduciary shareholder interest to keep your mouth shut.
1: Yeah, although at the same time, I, I think long run, it's been pretty clear for a while that China wants kind of all the best, the commanding heights of industry in China to be controlled by companies that can at some level be controlled by the Communist Party. And so I, I do think in a lot of these industries, American and European companies who've made a ton of money in China and and, and generally experienced more market openness than they ever did in, say, Japan, still long run, um, you know, if they're doing anything that's – especially if it's high on the technical sophistication scale – It seems like the long-run plan is to squeeze them
0: out. I got to ask you, before I get to your, your headline, Australia has been recession-free for 28 years. Could the U.S. be next? I mean, what about China? Has China had a hard landing in the post-WTO period? I don't recall. No, I mean I, I don't I, think so. It
1: came I, close in the
0: late 90s. In the late 90s, there was the Asian economic crisis, but I was never convinced that it was really a China thing. Yeah, kind they of Malaysia always, well, it in was Indonesia. always,
1: is China going to be the one that breaks next? And it never did.
0: How has that not happened? I mean, there, there's economics, there's physics, there's economic physics. And we've had Jim Chanos on the show. I've said it a million times. He, and you you cross paths with him at Fortune magazine, and he was skeptical of Enron. He says that China's the biggest bubble of all. You can't keep shoveling coal into this furnace and 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 uh, creating this economy of kind of, uh, you know, prefab, Potemkin demand. It's all going to come crashing and taking the global economy down with it.
1: In the long run, we're all dead. But, um, what, how many decades has the short run been now with China? I mean, they've mastered sort of Keynesian demand management better than any government ever has. It does seem like something that can't work forever, but it it's just one of those things, well, okay,
0: it's worked for quite a while now. Can I then throw a dumb question at you, A kind of a corollary on this? Wouldn't a hard landing for China be good for the United States on balance? If you talk about commodity prices, they're not on balance a massive importer of U.S. wares?
1: You know, we would like to sell them lots and lots of natural gas, for one thing. But, uh, I mean, the difficulty with it is I just think there's so many things that could happen because of that beyond just the short-term China hard landing probably brings a global recession at this point. You know, we think we've been disturbed by the behavior of the Chinese government lately, just wait until they feel like they're having trouble justifying themselves as the masters of economic growth to the Chinese population.
0: Justin, why can't they be loved? Why do they have to be feared in this case? Why can't there be many conversations in terms of uh, political discourse there and let a million flowers blossom economically? Why does one have to beget the other?
1: I don't know. I mean, obviously you'll get all these stories about, well, this is China. This is the way it is. I don't see why they can't look at Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, which were all effectively one-party states, where the dominant party finally decided to allow some competition. And in most cases, has still remained pretty dominant. I mean, every once in a while, somebody else will form a government, but it's not like the Kuomintang or the LDP in Japan, or I can't even remember the name of the party in, in South Korea. It's not like they've gone away. They're still mi- very powerful in society. They shape society, but they allow, you know, a bit more freedom around the edges. And I don't know why the Communist Party of China has decided it can't go that route. But clearly, you know, th- there were people in it who wanted to go that route, but Xi Jinping just thinks that would be a big mistake and has taken it much more back into the realm of one-man control.
0: And how and when do you see this trade war resolved, if at all?
1: It is just such a Lucy with the football thing for markets at this point that there's always some, oh, we're going to— you know, make there, there, there's a deal possible again. And suddenly everything goes up and then it never happens. I, I mean, it's difficult to say because it, I think it's pretty clear that the Trump administration has no actual plan here. I mean, I'm sure Lighthizer in his head has something he's striving for, but I'm sure it's also getting knocked around constantly by the statements of the president. Um, so it and, and then I think China has realized increasingly that that's the case and that there's not a huge amount to be said for um, making big sacrifices to make a deal. So I I could see it going on for the rest of the Trump presidency.
0: Hmm. Talk to me about this uh, U.S. economic expansion. Use the template of Australia to discuss uh, this this kind of long, long, long expansion that keeps going and going. I believe that... uh we're we're longer than the 1991 to 2001 expansion. Of course, we were coming out of this enormous crater in right. 2008 and 2009. So, what what caused you to kind of put your eye on Australia?
1: Well, I actually didn't at all. There's it's a, a little half sentence at the bottom of the um, column that my editors decided would be good in the headline, mm-hmm. and eventually persuaded me that they were right.
0: Cheeky, cheeky.
1: What I was interested in was the question of whether because I had. Written a piece for Business Week a couple weeks ago, just comparing um, economic growth uh, under Obama and Trump. And by it, Trump's still ahead on GDP growth, but there's this alternate measure that the Bureau of Economic Analysis publishes, called called Gross Domestic Income, that in theory should be the same as GDP, but never is. And there are economists who have argued over the past few years that it's actually a better real-time metric of how the economy is doing, and that actually grew faster during Obama's time as president um, than it has so far with during Trump's presidency. And so I heard from a few readers and an editor who said, well, but it doesn't really, I mean, it, it's always going to, the economy's is always going to grow faster early in a expansion rather than late. And I thought to myself, well, that's not what happened in the 90s. It grew fastest towards the end. And so I spent a ridiculous amount of time gathering GDP data all the way back to 1947, which is how far back the quarterly data goes, and looking at every expansion. And basically, definitely all those short little expansions they had in the 50s were all super-fast growth the first year and then settled down, and then there'd be a recession, and then there'd be super-fast growth again. Um, But as uh, expansions have gotten longer— that pattern doesn't always hold. So far, it's just basically just this expansion and the 90s one that have that actual accelerating growth over time pattern. Um, but, you know, the, in the 60s, the peak growth year was like five years in. And so the the question is just um, – and, and then that starts making making me think about this – question that gets asked a lot of do expansions die of old age? And increasingly, the thinking is no, not really. I mean, maybe it increases the chances that something will go wrong. But if you have good policy, big imbalances don't build up. Maybe they don't. Um, They can go on and on. And Australia is the most obvious case of that. It's had a couple of down quarters for GDP, but never two quarters in a row in the last 28 years.
0: Justin, I you know whenever I see my high school economics professor, I ask him this existential question, what is normal? Where is normal, right? We talked about the right. new normal in PIMCO talk. 2008, 2009, you're going to have to deal with debt write-downs, a standard of living bubble. All of that came and went very quickly. We have uh, wealth inequality back at, you know, Chasm, all yawning levels, and everything. And I think about interest rates where they were in 2007 before any hint of, you know, Orange County and subprime mortgages and liar loans and everything. We were at something close to five and a quarter percent. And I know this is an absolute level, but we're now closer to two percent or beneath two percent. And we're at full employment, and the Fed is still biased to cut rates. And the stock market is near a record high, and real estate and the banks have been recapitalized. So what other precedent for this kind of monetary environment have you seen in your career?
1: Um, I mean, Japan, I guess. Does that, <laughs> shouldn't that worry you? I mean, yeah, it's been kind of weird there. Things have grown slowly, but it's still a really nice place and people are still prosperous. Well, why is the Fed cutting rates
0: now? I mean, maybe some of it is self-inflicted with the trade war, but do you, you know, you're at full employment. I when I when I look about your, when I look at your expansion article, you know, and and never have you seen a president so open about kind of slamming his Fed, his appointed person, and saying that rates should be at zero. Um, we've kind of shattered many taboos just in the past six months.
1: Yeah, I mean, I got to say this is not a top—there are so many people in the world who opine about this and go on about this stuff. And so I just don't pay much attention to it. It's weird. Rates are really low. I, I don't know where we're going And I think 99.9% of the people who um, comment upon these matters on business channels and everything else don't really know either.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Justin Fox of Bloomberg Opinion, the veteran business journalist. He was previously at Time and at Fortune. Uh, You were raised in Northern California, am I right? Yep. Almond country?
1: Um, It was actually a former walnut orchard that was subdivided in the late 40s is where I lived.
0: Um, you have covered in your life all manner of corporations. I'm curious to see what you think of this Jewel controversy now, especially because Big Mo owns uh, 35% of Jewel. And there's an existential crisis at the same time for Philip Morris, which is owned by Altria, because their core cigarette business is declining. How do you even look at an example like this? The, the, whole, the whole outlook for juuling and vaping has changed so much just in two months with these mystery illnesses and these deaths being reported. It was looked at as, as uh, you know, I know your colleague Joe Nocera has commented on how revolutionary it was for smokers, two-pack-a-day smokers, to break their habit. But now suddenly it itself is toxic to the company that owns a third of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, again, not an, another issue that I mostly leave to others, but I, I mean, I think we're at this moment where it was seen as this much safer alternative to smoking. There's still a pretty good chance that it actually is, but clearly there's this weird thing happening now that's freaking lots of people out, totally understandably. So I, I mean, you know, Joe all along has really pushed this idea that, okay, maybe it's... Not great for you, but it's so much better than smoking that it's ridiculous for cities to be banning it and everything else. But clearly, it, you know, especially with when they were doing all the flavored um, jewels, it was appealing to a broader and younger audience even than smoking does. Um, so I, I mean I, I think this is one of those things just just going to play out. I think we'll get a better sense over time whether this is some weird anomaly or there were some hidden risks in these things that people just didn't know about. But when you were talking about Northern California, and where I grew up, I thought we were going to talk about PG&E.
0: We will. My neighborhood, no, is, no, no. My neighborhood
1: you... is completely um, where I grew up is in the
0: blackout zone. That so that blows my mind. This being a year after the campfire there and pg and uh, taking on responsibility, an enormous you know ba- bankruptcy type. Event and now um, so many, uh, you know. I heard an NPR piece this morning on people having to go out and buy hundreds of dollars of stuff from a 7-Eleven because there are no markets that are open. And you have this idea of rolling blackouts in such a, a, a you know economically prosperous part of the country. What does that speak to? What is the broader subject here? Because you have a you, regulated utility. It's it's quasi-private. Um, the, the, the this. California economy overwhelmingly depends on this one company what is the remedy i clearly it's not what they're doing
1: <laughs> i mean yeah it seems like it's this classic case where um you know pg&e is acting this way because it's held liable if it starts fire it's why you know pg&e electrical wires are not the main cause of these fires that they've been having in california the you know big fires of the last 100 years the majority are lightning and other human causes. Um, occasionally they have caused some big fires, um, and I think part of it is that they haven't done nearly a good enough job, they haven't invested enough in just basic upkeep of their um, you know, electrical infrastructure. But, yeah, I, I think this is this weird case where the optimal solution would be some sort of state takeover of, the liability, but at the same time, heavy pressure on the utility to upgrade quickly. Um, but you know, the way it works right now, it's instead what makes the most sense since it's a private company is to um, reduce the liability, even though I think overall, it's probably, they're, they're definitely making, more people are likely to be harmed by doing it this way than by whatever fire might be caused in those regions by it. Partly because, I mean, obviously the the Oakland fire of however many, 20 years ago, was awful. Um, But for the most part, in urban areas like the Bay Area, they're able to get in and put stuff out. A lot of these super giant fires have been out in areas where they want to let them burn because these areas need to be burned. So I, I feel like it, I mean this is all there. All of these articles about oh this is our future under climate change. Eh, I mean it's under it's our future under the way we've set up regulated utilities. It doesn't have to be.
0: What about managing fires though? I mean even if you look into Topanga Canyon or other places, Coldwater Canyon. You go into SoCal. There are areas that have. Very, very prohibitively high property taxes, and they keep going up because the cost of managing, micromanaging fires and not letting these fires burn out have, have become so high. There's population density. Um, you know, the, there are no controlled burns. We saw what happened in SoCal near the Getty Museum. Was it last year or the year before?
1: Yeah. I mean, clearly there's a bunch of people in California who live in what the, the wildland urban interface. And I, I grew up totally in it, right, backing up into this vast regional park. And I don't know where that goes. I mean, I think people love that, and it's beautiful, but that's super risky. I mean, I think the issue right now, as you look at the areas in the blackout map in the Bay Area, it includes lots of places that really aren't in that interface at all. That just happens to be where PG&E has power lines, I guess they're concerned about. Um, so it just – I think, yes, there are longer-term issues, and I think insurance costs and property taxes are going to have to keep going up for – houses that are right on that edge. Um, and I think, you know, California, if it keeps getting hotter, basically, if you want to live in California, it's going to have to be in denser places in the flatlands. Um, and that's where most people live already.
0: Justin, I want to take you back to agriculture. And the, you know, we, we once spoke about almond milk when you were on this show. You talked right? very eloquently about it. But you had this, this uh, very popular piece in Technology and Ideas for Bloomberg. It said, are burgers really that bad for the climate? You were trying to debunk. I, I don't know if it was a, a, a straw man argument that was made in The New Yorker. Um, every four pounds of beef you eat contributes to as much global warming as flying from New York to London. And the average American eats that much each month. What did you make of that? I mean, I I was
1: I, I was taken aback by it, but I didn't really know the numbers. And there were various people. The sort of the second that article came out um, online a couple weeks ago, there were all these people on Twitter saying, "How can that be?" Including people who know a lot about um, the climate impacts of agriculture. And so I did some calculating, and the closest I could get was eight pounds of beef would do it. Um, And then it it, it, turned—I communicated with Tad Friend, the author, and, yeah, if you use the estimates from this one article that was published in Nature late last year and you use a particular climate calculator for airplane flights that comes out a little lower than the other ones, you can get to four pounds. But the really big thing was this this article in Nature was an attempt—because most of these calculations of how many kilograms of carbon dioxide— equivalent are put into the atmosphere by farming are basically about the emissions that actually come from the farming, from the cows burping, from the tractors driving around, from the resources that go into growing the crops that the cattle eat. This um, study included that and and basically came up with very similar estimates to everybody else and then added in the opportunity cost of what if land that is currently devoted to farming, be it cattle or pigs or crops, were instead um, put back into its natural vegetation. And if you do that worldwide for cattle farming because, and and for sheep and goat farming, because they need lots of pasture generally, you come up with these astronomical numbers. And so the question is, is that the right way to think about it? Because in the U.S., You know, the most beef cattle are out in the Great Plains states on down to Texas and Oklahoma on land that was originally grassland and was originally grazed by a pretty much equivalent number of bison who burped about as much as maybe more because they're bigger than the cows do. So from that sense, it's not contributing a whole lot. But the argument in this article is we have to think about the global market and what's going on is people are tearing down forests in um, Brazil and Southeast Asia to raise more beef. And if there were less demand for beef worldwide, which U.S. consumers as I think the second biggest per capita consumers of beef in the world after the Argentinians, that would have an effect. So yes, we should think about it that way. I, I'm so I'm not. I wasn't trying to debunk it. I was trying to give a sense of why it's so different from other peoples and give people some equipment of how to how to think about this. Have you tried the Impossible Burger? I have had several. Beyond burgers, but I have yet to have an impossible.
0: Yeah, the impossible burger is a a revelation. Clearly, there's been a backlash to it because, you know, all these think pieces, it's not healthy. It's not meant to be healthy for you. And it's GMO. It's meant to be a crutch to take you away from the mouthfeel of of beef. But it really does a kind of a 90 percent job of approximating the the mouthfeel of a general, you know, burger patty, especially when you add cheese and these other things to it that might not be as as climate-neutral. Yeah,
1: and the Beyond, which isn't nearly as much of a technological marvel, is still pretty
0: tasty. Yeah, I mean, they used to taste like, uh, you know, gritty, grainy, corny things. And so this is a huge leap, and it makes you excited for the future. But I wonder, and Beyond, by the way, had a spectacular year in the stock market. The stock just kept surging. Uh, Obviously, Burger King is serving the Impossible Burger. They had a shortage. Um, This company has enormous valuation. The likes of Bill Gates and Google have written big checks. Celebs want in maybe it's a crutch maybe it's a it's a kind of a gap technology between what we have now kind of highly marbled carbon intensive fatty belching beef and and the great beyond the future where you can really not have to go through these things to provide what people want on their plates.
1: Well, I mean, because obviously there are a whole bunch of other issues with eating meat beyond the climate impact. And in fact, some of those, like if you follow the whole Michael Pollan, only eat grass-fed beef that are raised by nice farmers, possibly preferably in your neighborhood, in terms of climate impact, that's probably a higher climate impact than buying you know mass-produced beef that was raised on the range and then put into a feedlot. Um And so if you're looking at climate impact, the really dramatic change is just going from beef to pork or chicken because pork and chicken, much, 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 much lower impact.
0: Well, I have you on agriculture, Justin. You wrote about the United States is growing more corn than it can handle. Now, correct me if I'm mistaken, but when oil was at $140 a barrel back in 2008, we're talking about food versus fuel and cellulosic ethanol we'd need because we were denting that much into corn supplies. So much of it was being converted (laughs) Uh, to be used for fuel. Now you're telling us that there's a a, a spectacular productivity gains in the past 90 years are a miracle and a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just 40% of the country's corn harvest is going to ethanol now. And I don't think anybody, I mean, and and obviously that raises prices a little bit, but they're not, it's not like they've gone up a lot. Um, It's just, we're producing more corn than we really need in any rational sense. And so... We have legislated this inclusion of biofuels um, in our gasoline supply that, you know, as you say, when it was done in, I guess it was 2005 and 2007, oil prices were really high. They were concerned. Everybody's worrying about peak oil. And there were big hopes that making cellulosic ethanol out of switchgrass would be coming along really soon. Yeah, I remember it was, in a, it was
0: in the George W. Bush State of the Union, I believe, switchgrass. And yeah, and so mis- the switchgrass, mis-
1: <laughs> maybe that's still coming, but it hadn't happened yet, and it's all being made out of corn. And again, this, you know, these um, climate change studies, it, 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 that, that is a total—makes um, things worse, basically. Ba- drilling— oil and making it into gasoline has much less climate impact than growing corn and turning it into ethanol.
0: Talk to me about cars while we're on the, on the on the subject here. You know, GM is right now in the throes of this impasse with the United Auto Workers, and they clearly had their quick rinse bankruptcy back in 2009. Uh, things are gangbusters again in some respects, at least for the SUV market. Sedans, not so much. There are these existential concerns about the electrification. You know, my brother bought a Tesla Model 3, and he's just such a fanboy about it. Um, I, I imagine looking at this company that it's not such a big problem uh, for them. It's not like the UAW is strangling them that they're desperate to get supply to people out there. If anything, they might not mind having yeah, certain use, lines idle. Could use a break for yeah. a little while.
1: Yeah, that could be. Um, I mean, yeah, the whole U.S. auto industry, and it, it's just, be, and it's not really an auto industry; it's a truck industry, um, is. Uh, an interesting thing these days because you know they've had a pretty great decade after their utterly awful um, recession but it's just always they're, they're just utter dependence on ever larger vehicles um, while it you know works great for a while it just I it just feels like something that it you know it's cyclical we go back and forth between liking them and it has to do with oil prices and other things but um yeah I I, d- I don't know. I mean, and I think that's why the UAW is concerned. I don't know where things are going, and GM doesn't really either. They think at some point in the next couple of decades it's going to electric, and that's going to change a lot of things. But, man, nobody really knows. That's It's one of those things where it's just it's going to tip at some point, um, and we're still a long ways from that point.
0: And so just by the way of background, this is the fourth week since 46,000 GM union workers went on a nationwide strike. On Monday, GM made a new contract proposal to the union. Those close to the talks said the union was still working on responding. This is the kind of thing that back in the day, you know, with with Detroit's systemic importance and labor intensity of things, would have maybe brought the economy to its knees. Right. But now, with automation, with um, so many of these so many of these jobs going to non-unionized places in Mexico, in Canada, um, such tepid demand for old sedans that were that were kind of staple cars. Um, it it's amazing that you're not hearing more about this right now
1: yeah i mean and i i would say on the more generally on the demand side you know people don't need new cars in the way i mean partly just cuz they bought a lot over the last few years but also just that cars hold up a lot better than they used to and so it you know i i think people have been feeling flushed the last couple of years so they've been buying a lot but um having to pause is not something that suddenly causes everybody to freak out. So, yeah, it's still a big part of the economy. If auto sales really start dipping, that'll be one more pretty negative signal. But you're absolutely right that this is not the 60s anymore.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Justin Fox of Bloomberg Opinion, veteran business journalist. He was at Fortune for many years. He was at Time Magazine. Um, He is now at Bloomberg Opinion, where another uh, byline that really caught my attention and got you massive clickage was people who work from home earn 2000 more a year. Telecommuters are more likely to be white-collar workers and have a certain amount of bargaining power. Go figure.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is just the annual uh, data that the Census Bureau puts out from the American Community Survey where they ask people how they get to work, and people tell them. And a growing percentage are telling them that, oh, I, I I just work at home. Um, it's gone up from, it was about, and this is like, They asked you, what did you usually do the previous week? So these are mostly people who either happened to be home that last week, but more generally usually work at home. And it was like 3% through the 90s – then, in around 2001, when people started getting broadband at home, it started rising, and now it's 5.3 percent of um, American workers usually work at home. Other polls show up to like 43 percent do it at least occasionally, and it's pretty clear. In 2010, um, in the census data, the work-at-home people had a median in, median earnings that were 11 percent. Lower than those who drove to work. Now they're five percent higher. Another interesting thing is people who take public transportation to work have a slightly higher median earnings than people who drive. And the, the reason for that is purely geographical. Yeah. It's just you know, seven, two thirds to three quarters of U.S. public transportation commuters are in metropolitan New York, Chicago, um, San Francisco, Boston. I think that's it. Maybe Seattle, um, and. Those are all pretty, oh, Washington, that's the other one. Uh, those are all pretty high-income places, so that, that just drives it up. And I discovered after I wrote the column, if you dig in more, the people who really make the most money are ferry commuters and railroad, not subway, but railroad commuters. And when you think about where there are a lot of ferry oh, commuters, it's, New York. It's, yeah, it's it's yeah. New York, it's Seattle, it's San Francisco. That's basically it. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really tell you much, but it is kind of funny to think about certain public transit commuters are the highest-earning commuters of them all.
0: Now, I know you don't cover the brokerage industry. You have, parenthetically, you have, you know, your, your book certainly talked about the, the myth of the rational markets and markets. One of the big headlines in markets this month was the uh, the quiet death of commissions, the stock commission. We saw uh, uh, in one Tuesday, uh, TD Ameritrade lost 23%, its worst day in 13 years. E-Trade lost 18%, Schwab fell 10%. On news, that Charles Schwab, is dropping commissions for online trading of U.S. stocks and ETFs. And this, of course, Charles Schwab has led this huge deflationary pull in in all things. I mean, cutting index funds, I mean, outcutting Vanguard and the like. This is kind of a a whimpering headline that I think in the past, if you looked at the deregulation of commissions and some of the things in your career that you looked at in terms of capital markets history and the accessibility of markets to retail investors, this was a huge headline, and yet it wasn't.
1: Yeah, I mean things have been headed this way for a while. It is just it is fascinating that you know over my lifetime we've gone from commissions basically paying for everything to everything else paying for, you know, commissions being free and uh, brokerages having to find little ways to get money from you in every other possible way.
0: How do they, I mean, look, this is the stat that I'm pulling from an AP article. It said, the industry has been slashing fees across investments for years as customers demand lower expenses. Stock mutual funds last year kept $55 in fees for every $10,000 invested, according to the Investment Company Institute. That's down from $100 in 2003. Um, yep, and there and there's still a ton of, of of actively managed stocks. There there seems to be this idea, and this more going back to the book that you wrote that, you know, um, there's going to be a mass die-out of an enormous multi-trillion-dollar industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, the share going to index funds just keeps rising,
1: um, and clearly, active managers, a lot of them keep making a living, but it does seem like an endangered. Endangered business. I, I guess in the end, it, it's just and and with indexing versus active management, it's pretty clear what the sort of well, I think it's pretty clear what the wh- what you gain and what you lose. Um, I, I mean, and I think the main thing you lose is this growing concern, even um, you know, among people like Jack Bogle before he died, that well, gee, if all we get is all these index funds owning the same group of companies, that starts to do some weird things to the economy. Um, In terms of commissions, I think the issue is just that, okay, so Schwab is, and I'm a Schwab customer, they're going to find some other way to get money out of me, and it's going to be less transparent.
0: Justin, one of your summer headlines that I think has is is got, got the makings of a best-selling book in it, I know your wife would kill me for saying this, but the Amtrak that works and the Amtrak that doesn't. It's long-distance trains are expensive anachronisms that are dragging down the more successful parts of the system. But Congress can't bear to give them up. I think I chuckled a couple of weeks ago when they finally announced direct D.C. to New York, you know, nonstop service that would save, I think, what, 13 minutes over the Metro liner or Acela?
1: Oh, I missed that. That could be interesting. I mean the other thing that they announced to much gnashing of teeth among railroad aficionados is they're getting rid of the the actual kitchens on their cross country trains and replacing them with, you know, airline food. Um, which uh, that makes me a little bit sad. Although, because they already do that on the, the Chicago to San Francisco train. It's airline food. And basically the food is really good, but the whole atmosphere and vibe is awful, whereas the dining cars on the cross-country from Chicago to the West Coast are actually pretty fun. I I mean, I, I got a lot of blowback from that column, and i am actually been meaning to sort of revisit it because if you go by the accounting that Amtrak uses and that I think to some extent they've been ordered to use by Congress. It's absolutely true that the Northeast Corridor is a big money maker. Um, Everything else loses money, but a lot of the sort of regional services, Chicago to Milwaukee and such, partly because, and, and within California, partly because they get state subsidies, are pretty much at break even or better. And it's the long distance that lose lots of money. The difficulty that excludes capital expenditures, and basically on the Northeast Corridor, Amtrak's responsible for all of them because it totally controls it. After um, I guess it was the Penn Central Railroad went bankrupt in the in the early 70s, whereas all those cross-country. Uh, trips are going on Burlington Northern and Union Pacific tracts. That's the amazing thing to me.
0: So you still have to defer to CSX and these other commercial freight lines and everything. They have the right of way.
1: Technically, no. The law says they're supposed to defer to Amtrak. But I think the practicality of it is that it's still, you know, if there's traffic, there's traffic. They can't always. But it's written in the law that passenger traffic is supposed to get priority.
0: So let's just be pompous Northeasterners and Mid-Atlantic people for a moment. You see how you know dysfunctional LaGuardia is on a Sunday night or when a storm front comes through. You see the demand for people to get on the Acela train from Penn Station. You see how crowded it is. You see the, the passenger rolls that have been increasing over the years. Is it there, therefore impossible to kind of break out that profitable line? I mean, it, because of congressional inertia, because of people in the Midwest that you have to pry their – their you know their scenic routes and their stops from their cold dead hands that Amtrak will never be able to have that self determination for those short stretches that could be in fact profitable.
1: Well, I mean that's the the current Amtrak CEO and I'm blanking on his name but he's a former airline CEO. That was what a he's, former Delta Delta CEO. CEO. He's, he, that's what he's trying to do. He's basically starving the the cross country lines and focusing not just on Northeast Corridor but on sort of in general train traffic train as an alternative as a serious alternative is better for sort of mid-range distances i mean in europe it was funny i was looking at like the world's longest um regularly scheduled train routes and you know none of them are in western europe and that's partly because western europe is relatively small but also just that there's not a huge market for those things it turns out i've been on the longest one it's from stockholm to Narvik up in northern norway and that's an overnight, it's an overnight, but that's it. Um, you leave, I can't remember if you leave in the afternoon and get there in the morning, but. Are, it, the, are
0: the metrics in apples to apples things though, For you, are, are these countries expecting these lines to be break even or profitable? Or I think about the Japanese bullet train, the number of workers every night who go and look for uh, debris on the tracks to keep these things running on time.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way they, every countries do it differently, but there's there's subsidy everywhere. And I think the argument, in general, the way it's been set up is that countries have looked at keeping the tracks working as government responsibility to some extent. And then the railroads are supposed to then run businesses with operating profits but aren't responsible for all the capital expenditures. And I think that's the way Amtrak would like to think about things, too. Um, I, I, I don't know. It, it just it frustrates me because it seems like for the eastern third of the United States, and then also most of the West Coast, it, it seem there's enough density to do European-style rail frequencies. And I think the evidence. I mean, I think one of the issues is you sort of need a city at one end that it's actually really good to get there at the train station in the middle. It's better to get there to the train station in the middle of the town than to the airport, and that's true of Chicago. It's true of New York. It's it's true of San Francisco, except the train doesn't actually go into San Francisco. Um, it may be getting true of, of um, Los Angeles over time. But with a lot of other cities, it's just like, you know, if you're traveling out of Columbus and i think columbus actually doesn't have an amtrak station at this point but it would be more of a pain to have to for most people who live in the area to have to leave from downtown than to just go to the airport and so that i think that's part of the difficulty that the us has is too many cities that aren't really set up for this but i mean going farther down than just the northeast corridor going on down to richmond and on towards atlanta i think i think there's an appetite for more and and i think states are willing to put some money into that so I don't know. I am really struggle because I just heard from so many people who were crushed by my disdainful tone toward the um, cross-continental uh, rail well, what lines. About, what but, about
0: true uh, you know, China-Japan caliber high-speed rail in this country? You're not going to see it in your lifetime?
1: No, I guess not. I mean, California was going to try it, but I think they've
0: pretty much given up. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Justin Fox of Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Justin, in the 15 minutes or so left, there's one other story I want to ask you about here is – the rise of fresh fruit—you've put that on, you've flipped that on its end. You say the worries about sugar are reshaping American diets and the fruit business. So yes, orange juice is suddenly taboo, and I talked to my wife about it with my son. I can't tell you how much juice my dad let me have as a kid. Coca-Cola, which my kid has not even tried, and he's ten. But this is fundamentally reshaping entire businesses. If you look at PepsiCo and Coke and and. You know, juice businesses and Capri Sun and everything. Suddenly, these things are taboo, and yeah. people are opting for. Even if you look at the drink of choice this summer, it was hard seltzer, which is bereft <laughs> of of sugar and everything. And existentially, again, a company as storied as Kraft Heinz, which has Warren Buffett backing it, is also in crisis mode because they have so much goodwill and so much history behind you know full sugar, full fat, full carb, full hydrogenated brands, and now yeah. this is all being unwound.
1: Yeah, and it is funny because this is all happening at the same time that we just get this new study saying, "Oh, all those things we said about how bad red meat is for you, we couldn't, act, we can't actually back that up." Um, so it, it all this turn against sugar. I'm pretty sure it's actually correct, and and I'm basing this on you know, very subjective, just how I feel um, if I consume a lot of carbs and sugar and don't. But I I, I think this has been a correct correcting a big error that was made in the in the 60s and 70s where all the focus was on fat and not on the things that actually make people fat so i hope this holds up but it's pretty it's been kind of brutal for people who make juice although interestingly it hasn't been that bad for you know fruit overall more of it's being sold i mean the other interesting thing that's happened as part of all of this is that it hap- this turn away from fruit juice, fruit juice getting a reputation as sugar water happened pretty much at the same time that the Florida orange industry was collapsing um, for supply reasons, totally different. First a bunch of hurricanes and then this citrus greening disease. And so I mean, I, I think most of our orange juice now comes from Brazil, and there's a, there are a lot fewer people drinking it. So that's kind of worked out. I think Florida, Orange growers are starting to come back a little bit, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Right now, most fresh citrus is actually, fresh oranges are from California, and then grapefruits are from a variety of places. But actually, g- grapefruit consumption has plummeted because um, nobody can take it with their statin and right. stuff. So that's been kind of, because I love grapefruit, but um, they, grapefruit has been hit both on the juice
0: side and on the fresh fruit side. Incidentally, do you know where all Lipitor is manufactured? I just learned this. I don't know. Ireland? Staten Island. Oh, oh dad okay. joke. Shared it with the kids. No, but uh, you know, <laughs> from one dad to another. Sir, uh, this is the part of the show that we call Free Skate. If you remember your favorite roller skating rink in the late 70s or early 80s, right, there'd be like some air supply. Oh, I had so on. many. Yeah. There would be (laughs) air supply would come on. It's like, all right, couples, it's free skate, everybody for themselves. You get to take the mic. You can tell me what I should be. Tell our listeners out there who love Bloomberg and Bloomberg Opinion what they should be focusing on. What's been short shrift in this environment? What is on your plate for the rest of October and the rest of the year? It's all yours.
1: Hmm. Um... I mean, one of the – and this is, again, something – because I, I, I've got some things I'm working on, but I don't think I'm supposed to talk about them yet. Um, so one thing I did a few weeks ago was a report came out of Canada that if you measured it just the right way, Canadian per capita incomes were now higher than American per capita incomes. Mm. And it just reminds me, this week there's been all this um, debate – Starting with a David Leonhardt column in the New York Times early in the week about this new data from um, uh, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zucman, both professors at Berkeley, on how the tax system has gotten flatter and flatter over time, um, and there have been a lot of other economists debating that. It, and to the point that they they claim that as of 2018, the richest Americans were paying taxes at a lower rate than the poorest Americans. Mm and it was this fascinating debate about um well how do you measure it uh, do you count earned income tax credit as part of the taxes or do you count it as a welfare program um and do you how do you figure how do you estimate what the actual income of super super rich people is and it's sort of the same with this are canadians better off than americans it's entirely which um, measure of purchasing power parity, which is this thing that is used to compare um, how well off you are with a certain amount of money in different countries around the world. I mean, the simplest version of it is the Economist's Big Mac Index. It's like how much does a Big mm. Mac cost in each country. And if you use most of the standard purchasing power parities from the World Bank or the OECD um the Canadian median household income is still significantly lower than the US, although it's gotten a lot closer. But if you use this one that the Canadian government came up with um, then, and they didn't come up with it for the purchase, for the purpose of trying to make Canada look better, they're really trying to come up with a good purchasing power measure, Um, then it looks like Canada has now passed the US and the median um, household there is better off than the median American household. And it just gets, in so many of these things, it's there are different ways to measure these things they're all legitimate um and i guess in the end it sort of depends what most people can get convinced is really going on i heard from so many people were just deeply offended americans and some canadians by the idea that canadians were better off than americans but i i I find it fascinating to contemplate that well if you measure it just the right way they've they've passed us
0: well, Justin, what about I, when, when I read that? I was thinking about the the sudden pungency of Elizabeth Warren's you know wealth redistribution arguments and the supposed uh, leaks out of Wall Street that we will we will riot and on, on Wall and Broad right. with pitchforks if she gets the nomination. One, do you buy that she is a legitimate kind of co front runner at this point? And two, do you buy that she uh, that the party and, and Wall Street, some of the more money donors are scared of her?
1: I mean, yeah, I think though I think she is the front runner by now because she's got so much more momentum than than Biden. I, I do know that we're still you know months away from even the Iowa caucuses, so lots and lots can change, and the dynamics are interesting. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I guess Wall Street hasn't had a candidate this that it could freak out this much about since FDR and since Wall Street was already totally collapsed when FDR came along, they they could wail, but it didn't really matter. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I I just, I think, you know, obviously that might cost her some money with um, financial industry donors, but if the people in the financial industry decide to loudly oppose the um, Elizabeth Warren candidacy, I mean, I think that's the best thing that could ever happen
0: to her. But the, the strange thing is that the people in the Senate, they don't have the Senate the Democrats. And even if they would win, you you run out the simulation, she does ascend to the White House. Uh, There are many people out there who don't want to go out and, and, you know, put their hands to the fire for Medicare for all or for subsidizing college tuition and the like. And maybe the market's pricing in that fact that it's by no means a done deal with her. She can't exactly cram these things through.
1: No, she can't at all. I mean, she'll have her priorities, and I think it could have a huge impact on—in the end, what it'll have a big impact on is financial regulation, Um, because a lot of that is discretionary by the administration, and she knows a whole lot about it.
0: That's what people seem to forget. She knows a whole lot about this. And before she went off to the Senate, she was looked at as a threat for, you know in terms of consumer protections in the financial industry there's one source who i've dealt with in my career who you know at that level was able to play ball with regulation who was able to cut through wall street esoteric, and that was really elizabeth warren and now suddenly she's a front runner for the democratic nomination
1: right yeah i i mean i i i just feel like wall street got everything to go its way for like 30 years um and these people can handle a few setbacks.
0: You have time for one more thought, one more headline, one more thing in the news. Um, you know, there's Paul Krugman's column there that what economists, including me, got wrong about globalization. You talk about trade. You could talk about electric cars, the never Trumpers. You could take me anywhere, Justin Fox. Um, yeah, never Trumpers.
1: <laughs> uh, electric cars. I mean, I, I'm still fascinated by it because the electric cars, it's this classic sort of network thing, that once you have enough of a network set up, everybody will want electric cars because they'll very quickly become much, they're much lower maintenance, I think, than
0: than internal
1: combustion engines. Um, They can be made to drive spectacularly well like the Teslas do. But I think about in New York City, it's just not practical, in Manhattan at least, it's not practical at all. There's no place to plug them in unless you're a New York City Parks Department employee who can park in Central Park where they have a bunch of plugs. And so it's this fascinating – it seems like there's a really big role for um, government to push this ahead. But we, we go back and forth where basically Republican administrations have become very much entwined with the fossil fuel industry. And so the Democrats will push stuff like this and Republicans will push it. But against, what about but-
0: what about private sector things on their own volition? I was just outside of D.C. a few Sundays ago, and I'm in Fredericksburg, and the sun is going up on a Sunday morning, and there's this panoply of Tesla superchargers at a Wawa. And so Tesla owners would be the likes to tell you that it's not that difficult to install superchargers. Everybody's yeah. on the grid, and at some point hotels are going to want to do it. At some point the economics made sense for gas stations to do it. In yeah, I, th- to- I think
1: actually – it yeah, I, I think it can work pretty – relatively quickly everywhere but super dense cities and then in super dense cities it probably just But is my gonna... question
0: to you is, is the chicken or egg thing does that have to happen first for the tipping point in electric cars or do you have to have enough fanboys out there and by the way the Model 3 is selling pretty briskly right as a top selling sedan right now for private capital to kind of say we want to go out and build the infrastructure
1: right I mean, yeah, Elon Musk is a mess in many ways, but he has done great things on this um, in sort of creating that rabid fan base that is will- was willing at first to suffer a whole lot of inconvenience. I, I mean, it's just one of those things that it feels like it's really close. But, I mean, on the other hand, in China where government has pushed it really, really heavily, I think they did it a little prematurely. The cars just weren't good enough. Um, and I think they've had a lot of problems because of that. So maybe we'll somehow get lucky and through some mix of um, our own confusion and private sector money coming in at the right time, and government will will time it right
0: and catch the wave. But I, I don't know. Justin Fox, we love catching your waves, sir. Give us your digits again, where people can find you. Be your opinion, of course,
1: yeah. I mean, Justin Fox at Bloomberg Opinion. You can just sort of Google that and always find me. I'm on Twitter at FoxJust, F O X J U S T.
0: And you're always near and dear to my heart, Justin Fox. Thank you for bringing me into this beautiful industry 20 years ago. I cannot thank you. You're always welcome on this show. You know that.
1: It's always, always fun to be on here with you, Robin.
0: Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Bloomberg, New York. You can enjoy this show now in its fifth year on NPR member station, VPM News, on NPR.org and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. Reminder that our landmark evening with the band Not A Surf is right around the corner Sunday, November 10th at The National in downtown Richmond. Hear the stories, then hear the music. You can get tickets at The National in person or at notasurf.com. You don't want to miss it. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.